Right on. Good morning, Resonate. It's great to be together. If you're online joining us, I'm so glad you are part of the family. And if you're in Hayward, uh, it's great to be together as, as a church this morning. So, hey, 32 years ago, at the ripe age of 19, I asked my father-in-law if I could take his daughter. And uh, he didn't look at me like I was nuts, which he probably should have. Um, but right after I asked him if I could marry his daughter, we entered into a time of premarital counseling. And a faithful older couple named Stan and Robin uh, began to mentor us, began to tell us, these are the things that you need to prepare, be prepared for in marriage. And I remember this one night we were over their house and it was kind of chaotic. They had four kids and they were feeding them dinner while we were doing our premarital counseling. So you can just imagine the scene there. They were all tiny little kids. But it was probably the best ever because we got to see what real life looked like. And I remember one of the instructions they gave us that night was, your marriage is going to be 10 times better and 10 times worse than anything you've ever experienced. The hard times are going to be 10 times harder. The good times are going to be 10 times better. And I can tell you, fast forward over 30 years now, that is true. The good times have been 10 times better. You have someone to share your jokes with. And they actually, they, they, I don't know if your spouse laughs at your jokes, um, but if, if they don't, you need to get better jokes, okay? Um, but memories, Christmases together, vacations together, intimacy, all of that has been 10 times better than I could ever imagine. But the hard times have been 10 times harder because you can't get away. You're stuck there. And so you've got to work through your disagreements. You have to work through your opinionated differences, your preferences. It is 10 times harder. And if you've been through some sort of trauma, that is even harder to try and work through as you begin to unfold what's been going on in your life. And when, time, when, when times get harder, uh, sometimes it feels hopeless, doesn't it? Like you do feel trapped, like the bird in the cage. So we are in this series called Free Indeed, and we've been looking at freedom from worry, from bitterness, from discontentment, depression. And here's the good news this morning. Jesus tells us this, the robber only comes to steal and to destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And here's what we know in Jesus. Every saint has a past, but every sinner has a future. Amen? So today we're, we're tackling this issue of freedom from a stuck marriage. So let's turn in our scripture today to Ephesians chapter 5. I love the fact that we take everything from God's word at Resonate. That's the center of where we come back to, God's word. So if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, before I ask you to stand, I want to tell you a couple things as you're turning. Um, this is a marriage ser sermon. So some of you, you're like, cool, I'm married. This is going to be really helpful to me. Uh, some of you married people are going to tune out because you feel like you've already heard everything on marriage, and yet I would just tell you today, God wants to speak to you this morning. But then for some of you who aren't married, you're like, uh, what's my part in this? Well, some, like, if, like, um, like we said, some of you are going to get married one day, and so this is how you're, you know, we're preparing you and helping you think, so this is going to be helpful to you. Um, but you know what? You all know people who are married, Right? You all know people who are hopeless in marriage. You, all, you, you probably sit next to people at work that are thinking about quitting on marriage. And therefore, I think what God wants to say to all of us today um, applies. 
And you're going to go back out into a world when we're done here who needs to hear the good news of Christ. And as you listen to it, maybe God would speak to through you. And I, I can tell you, like, my kids have taught me a lot about marriage. And so if you're sitting even here as a student this morning, um, God is going to use your voice as you hear his truth uh, to speak truth into others' lives. So will you stand with me and let's uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start in uh, verse 22 and read God's word together. You ready? Are you ready? Okay, there we go. There you are. It says this. I, I know you were like, you're like, oh my gosh, he's going to the deep end of scripture right here, right? That's what you were thinking. Yeah, we are. Um, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own body, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Church, you may be seated. Thanks be to God for his word. Uh, in 2017, there was a lady named Esther Perel who spoke at a TED Talk. And I, I love listening to different TED Talks. And Esther Perel, she actually is a therapist that goes around the world and studies affairs. She studies what causes affairs, what the outcomes are of affairs. And it was really interesting to me because I don't think she's a believer in Jesus. She didn't say that from the stage of the TED Talk. Uh, but she actually comes to a Judeo-Christian morality at the end of her TED Talk. And she says, affairs are destructive. They will hurt you. The outcome of them is terrible. Please stay married. Please stay, have sex within your marriages. And then she says an even more interesting thing at the end of uh, her TED Talk. She says, you will be married four to six times in your lifetime. I just hope it's to the same person. I thought, man, that's really great. That's been helpful to me because I think my wife has been married 26 times to the guy who keeps changing over and over again. And I think I've been married to my wife, who's probably changed four times in our lifetime. Why? Because when we first got married, we didn't have kids. And then all of a sudden we get married and we have kids. And life changes. And maybe you're, you got married and then you went through a time of infertility and your marriage changed. And then your kids get into high school and life changes again. And then they start leaving. Life changes again. Then you become grandparents and life changes again. And so you feel like you're hitting this over and over again. And each transition reveals something new about you. Reveals something new about your marriage. And so you will probably be married four to six times in your lifetime. And it is hard to try and figure those out. 
you remember the, uh, the show Wipeout? You know, the big red balls and the big obstacle course and, you know, and people are like running across and there you are, you're sitting on your couch and you're like, uh, man, I know I'm eating nachos right now, but I'll tell you what, if I was up there, I would kill this obstacle course, <laughs> right? And then you see like people running across, they're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill this, this is going to be amazing. And then the first like baton comes across and just takes them out of the knees and they're gone, right? And you think, oh, I could do better than that. But that's the way marriage is, I think. Like you're like, I'm going to nail this, it's going to be fantastic, like we're going to we're going to love being married, and then it comes at you, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is much harder than I thought it would be. And if you're in a stuck marriage, I want to tell you this morning, you're not the only one. In fact, Ephesians, this book, was written to people just like us. Same struggles, same struggles. And if you're older, would you do me a favor real quick? Um, would you just nod your head if you are in agreement that marriage is hard? If you've been married for a while, would you just nod your head and say, marriage is hard? All right, that's not enough of you. Like, keep... Okay, because everybody in this room, everybody in Hayward, everybody online needs to see uh, that marriage is actually difficult. And it's, it is. I mean, we have these, like, ideologies of looking on social media, looking on Facebook, like, they're so happy. He loves her. He loves him. It's so great. And yet you don't get to see the arguments and the discussions. You know, it's always fun. The greeters at church get to, walk, get to watch you all walk up, and then they get to guess. I wonder who was in a fight on the way in the car today, huh? They look so nice. We're like, honey, keep your act together, you know? Like, but marriage is hard. And if you're, you know, if you are stuck in a ditch, whether you fell in that ditch, um, whether you were pushed in that ditch, or whether you climbed in it yourself, or whether you were dragged into that ditch, and you've been in that ditch for a long time, and you've been trying to get out of that ditch, but you can't, and you are exhausted, you don't need someone leaning over the edge of that ditch and saying, try harder. You don't, right? Like, you're exhausted. Like, what do you think I've been doing down here? And what you need is someone to jump in that ditch with you. Say, let me help you. Uh, good advice is try harder. Good news is what the gospel is going to give us this morning. That Jesus actually jumps in the ditch with us. So as we tackle freedom from a stuck marriage, there are three common problems that I want us to unpack together. Are you ready? Here's the first one. We get stuck because we forgot who created marriage. Now I'm going to give some examples this morning. Um, I'm gonna, the first one is a, a couple named Gary and Melissa, and the names have been changed, all right? I, I forgot to say that on Thursday night, and someone came up to me, and they said, oh, you know, I think you're going to make people terrified that, uh, you know, that you'll use them as an example if, you, if they ever end up in your office. And I'm like, oh, these people are all from Modesto, where I came from anyway. So, but uh, no, these names have all been changed, okay? So Gary and Melissa, they come into my office, and they say, hey, we're, we're really stuck in our marriage, like, we feel pretty hopeless at this point, and we don't know what we're supposed to do. And, and I said, well, okay, what have you tried so far? And they said, we went and talked to all our friends about it, got their help. We went and talked to a therapist, a counselor. Uh, we went and talked to, um, our, we, we went and talked to a, a group about this, like an accountability group. We got some books. We went to a conference. Uh, we talked to an attorney about it because it's getting so hard. 
And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Like, you went and talked to all those people. What about God? What about the one who created marriage? Do you know there's only two institutions that God created? The church, that's you, okay? This is just a building until you show up. So the church, he created the church, and then he created marriage. Every other institution, like schools, governments, military, any other organization, are all man-made organizations. But the church and marriage is a God-ordained institution. So if he created the institution of marriage, do you think that he knows what is best about marriage? I mean, imagine this. You're driving down the street with me, and I own a 77 Jeep, which breaks down all the time because it's old, like me, you know? And, and it just, like every once in a while, just die. And so I pull over to the side of the road because it's not, there's no, no, no momentum, nothing, and we pull over safely to the side of the road. And, uh, and I say, hey, will you reach in the glove box for me and pull out the owner's manual? And again, we're in my Jeep, right? So you, you reach into the glove box, you pull it out, and I'm like, okay, cool, let, let me read that. And you're like, wait a second, this doesn't, this is a Tesla's owner manual. Like, why would you have this in your car? And I'm like, it's got four wheels. I mean, it's pretty much the same thing. They're like, no, this is completely different. And yet, isn't that kind of like what happens when we don't go to the author of marriage and say, what do you want for this, Lord? What do you have? What do you have in this marriage? And I would just ask you this morning, are you willing to go back to the author of marriage today, to listen to him, to seek his help, to seek his path? And oftentimes we look at scripture, like even the one we read today, wives submit to your husbands, and we're like, what kind of advice is that? Don't we live in 2023? That seems like foolishness to us. And yet, do you not know that the scriptures actually say that some things in his word are going to sound like foolishness? Check out, check out what he says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction, but for those who are being saved, they know it is the very power of God. You see, we, we who believe in Christ put a reverence of God's word over our own opinions, even when it seems foolishness to us. And we're like, God, I want to get to the heart of what you're really saying here. I want to understand what you're talking about because we're coming back to what? The author of marriage. And sometimes we get stuck because we forgot who created it and we've got to get back to the one who created it. So the second thing is we get stuck because we're not continually leaving and cleaving. So Ken and Priscilla there in my office are like, our marriage is hopeless, we're done, it's over. And I'm like, what's up? Like, why, why are you in such dire circumstances here? And she says, well, you know, Ken, when he squeezes the toothpaste, he does it from the center. And everybody knows it should be squeezed from the end. And Priscilla, when, when she puts the when she replaces the toilet paper roll, she puts it under, and everybody knows that it's supposed to go over. And Ken's parents really think it's time for us to buy a house, and yet I don't think we're really ready for that yet. And this group of people were speaking into our lives, and they think that we should do such and such or move to Tennessee or Idaho. They think that we should move to... And, and you know, so we're... We're just having a, a problem with this. And I say, oh, you know what happened in your marriage is you never leaved, you never cleaved. You're not leaving, you're not cleaving. So I want you to imagine this. There's two big circles, okay? 
And one circle is you, and one circle is your spouse or your future spouse. And in that first circle, you, is like all your brothers and sisters, the town that you grew up in. It's the experiences that you've had in your life. It's the traditions that you have. This is the way we do Christmas. This is the way we do Easter. This is the way we don't do Christmas. This is the way we don't do Easter. This is how much money we keep in savings. This is how often we eat out. And you have all these accumulated experiences. Here's the culture that we were in. Here's the way that family talks to one another. Here's how we discipline our children. You've got all this stuff that you've grown up with, and that's you. Well, guess what? Your spouse is that other big circle, and they have exactly the same thing. All of the experiences, everything that they've grown up in. They've got their religious beliefs. They've got the way that they understand the Bible. They've got the different things that were important to them growing up. They've got their opinions and their preferences. And then you have another circle, which is your marriage. And see, what you've got to do is you've got to leave that first circle of all of your own. That's called leaving. And you've got to go to a new circle of cleaving. Honey, how do we squeeze the toothpaste at this house? Honey, what are our financial priorities. Honey, I don't care what our parents thought. What are we going to do? Honey, I understand how you disciplined and this is how we disciplined, but let's study God's word together to see how we are going to discipline. You see, that's leaving and cleaving. And you might be leaving some good stuff for something that is better because it's both of you. Do you see it? Now, I can tell you, like, one of the things we had to leave was bad theology. So, for example, when it says, wives, be submissive to your husbands, the church that we grew up in, man, they had a really crappy understanding of what that meant. And maybe you've grown up in that crappy understanding of what that meant. It basically meant if the, if the husband says jump, the wife says how high. And my wife was like, I'm not down for that. And I was like, why not? That sounds really good. <laughs> but what we began to learn over the years was that is really a crappy definition. And so we had to fight together to leave our old understanding and say, you know what? What Jesus has for us is abundant life. He has good. So when he tells the wife to submit, when he tells the husband to love, when he tells tells everyone to submit to him he's got something good and then we have to work really hard to discuss to read to think to listen to sermons to listen to people who were becoming more like jesus so that what we could leave those circles of our individuality and cleave to what is good do you see and some, some of us even have taken it one step further where we have traditions, habits, we have religion, and we have culture. Like, you've brought something. Like, I brought a lot of Britishness with me into my marriage. And I had to learn how to put that behind. She brought a lot of American into, her, into our marriage. And somehow we synchronize religion and culture and traditions and habits, and it's painful to somehow let all that stuff go and cleave to something new of what God has for us. 
I think the, uh, the song by Frank Sinatra, I Did It My Way, probably not the best roadmap for marriage. And even if you think, oh, if I got my way, this would be way better, I guarantee you, you get your way, your marriage is going to die. Because you've got to leave behind what was the old and bring together what is the new. And I just wonder, are you willing to trust the creator of marriage and leave and cleave? Are you willing to die to the old? Are you willing to say, God, bring the new? Bring the new. You have something better for me, Lord, than what I grew up with. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Now, those first two points that I've given, God is the creator of marriage and leave behind the old and cleave to the new, are all going to enable this third point. So you're going to need to trust the creator of marriage And then you're going to have to leave behind your way of thinking and cleave to something new if you're going to catch this third point because I think it's going to take some of you off guard. And so it's this one. We get stuck in marriage because we are focusing on the wrong person. So here's how this works. Mark and Anna come into my office and they tell me they're stuck and hopeless and they're in dire straits. Like, this is really, their marriage is not going well. They're thinking about getting divorced. It's like, this has been going on for years and years and years, and now we're just dead. We're numb. This is hard. And, uh, and I say, what's going on? Like, tell me, you know, what's happening? Well, she does this. Well, he does this. And constantly back and forth, there's this blaming game. Look what she does. Look what he does. Look what she does. Look what, well, you don't even know the half of what he does. And there's just this argument back and forth. Now, it's no surprise that the first person that we tend to focus on in our marriages when we want something fixed is the other person, right? I mean, this marriage would pretty, be pretty great if it wasn't for them. You'd be single if it wasn't for them, Okay. But you would say, if they would just, if she would just, if he would just. Now, I want to ask you, how long do you have to be married before you realize that you can't change anyone? You can't. Lepers don't change their spots, right? Super frustrating if all you are doing is thinking about the other person. So then, uh, the second person that we want to focus on fixing in our marriage is ourselves, And this may be closer to what God intended because verses 22 and 25 actually give instructions to the wife, this is what you should do, and to the husband, this is what you should do. And neither place it says, husbands, you should help your wives do their part, or wives, you should help your husband do his part. It just speaks specifically to you, which means... You're the one who has to focus on yourself, not upon the other person. But here's what happens. Um, You begin to work on yourself. You begin to do all the right things for a little while, taking all the best books, best courses on marriage, and you're like, I'm going to do this. It's going to be great. And then you don't do so well. And you begin to beat yourself up. Like, I wish I could do this better. 
And then you start shooting all over yourself like, I should do this, I should do that, I should do this, I should do that. And pretty soon you're exhausted and you cannot improve enough. Have you ever heard the, the law of halves? You know, like if you're trying to move towards the end of something and you just go halfway and then you go halfway again and then you go halfway again and then you go halfway again. And, and the law of halves basically says that you can never get to your destination if you always move by halves. And sometimes that's what marriage feels like. Like you're trying to get better, but you're never really getting to the end result there. And then you start to go, man, God said his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and I just don't feel like that at all. And how many of us feel that way? It's like just the weight. Well, Jim, this is a super helpful sermon so far because you've said don't focus on them and don't focus on yourself. So who are we supposed to focus on in our marriage? Who are we supposed to focus on? And I want you to notice what happens in our text because there is a third person that Paul consistently talks about in your marriage, and it is Jesus. See, in verse 23, he says, as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its savior. In verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Again, he says in verse 25 that he might present the church to himself in splendor. In verse 29, just as Christ does the church. And then in verse 30, we are members of his body. And as Paul gives instruction about marriage, and instruction is good. I think instruction is super helpful. But he cannot give instruction without talking about Jesus. And Paul entwines how, the, how love the churches when he talks about marriage. Now that picture is amazing. And you'll only understand it if you understand who the church is. Who's the church? It's you. It's you. This was only a building until you showed up this morning. This was chairs and floors and nice furniture and tech stuff. And then you showed up and it got good. See, this place is boring when you're not here. But then the church arrives, and it's you. And he is saying, I love the church. I love you as people. Now, here's the thing. If we are honest, the typical worldly response to marriage, the typically worldly response is to focus on your spouse. She's not a good fit. He's not a good fit. You guys have just gone different directions. Um, that person is not who you thought it was. They were. Uh, you need to drop the dead weight. Uh, he let himself go. She used to be fun. And when you listen to social media, you listen to social commentary, typically this is what happens. You listen to these people who are supposed to be marriage experts, and they're like, well, in order for you to be happy, you've just got to let this person go over there. They weren't the person you married anyway. That's the typical worldly response is focus on the other person. But the typical religious response is focus on yourself. I am the problem. And so in religion, we would say things like go to marriage conferences, read some books, do some accountability groups. If you just change such and such, if you follow this three-step plan for your marriage... If you do Bible studies that focus on marriage, and I'm not saying that any of those things are bad, 
But at the end of the day, they're just exhausting. And so the gospel says this, focus on Jesus. Focus on the one who didn't leave you in that ditch and say, hey, try harder, but jumped in the ditch with you. So what is Paul pointing us to remember in the midst of marriages about how he loves the church, how he, how he sees this? How does Jesus love the church? Well, first of all, Jesus knows us. In verse 23, he calls himself the head of the church. Now you think, like, scientists tell us that you don't even feel really pain throughout your body, just in your head. It just sends the signals up there so that your brain can decipher it. The head knows everything. The movements, it's the thing that takes care of everything. And Jesus says, I'm the head of the church. He knows all of our pains. He knows everything that we are going through. He knows everything about us. He knows you. But he doesn't just stop there. He says in verse 25 that he gives himself up for us. He knows us and then he has incredible empathy for us. He sees us. He comes down. He's saying, I'm going to jump in that trench with you. I'm in the ditch with you. But then he doesn't say, I'm going to leave you there. He actually says in verse 26 that he sanctifies us by the washing of the water with the word. Now, that's a, a weird verse because what does it mean to wash with the water of the word? Well, he, Paul is pointing back to the, to the um, bridal party, the, the, the idea, the practice of the day of covering up all the smelly parts and the wrinkly parts with perfume and makeup. That's what he's, he's doing. He's using that as an illustration. And sure enough, we do the same thing today. But what Jesus is saying is, I actually cover you up, all your smelly and wrinkly parts, with my word over your life. And he doesn't just cover it up. He says, I'm going to make you new. He doesn't stop there. He says, I'm going to nourish and I'm going to cherish you in verse 29. See, nourishing is a word of provision and cherishing is a word of intimacy. It's like Jesus looking at us like children and he's saying, I'm going to provide for you and I'm going to dote on you. And in case you didn't notice, the chapter of scripture that we're in is Ephesians chapter 5. There's four chapters before that and all of them are their beautiful gospel of how Jesus loves and cherishes and nourishes us. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, in verse 4, he says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption. In verse 8, his forgiveness he lavishes upon us. And in verse 11, in him we have, been, we have obtained an inheritance. So these are words of nourishing and cherishing. And you go back through and read the entirety of the book of Ephesians up to this point, he's telling you Jesus is providing and doting on you, his church. He loves you. We're the 99. We're, we're, we're the one person who Jesus says, I'm going to leave the 99 and I'm going to come after you. Did you know that? He's not talking about someone else. He's talking about you. When you walk away from Jesus, he's willing to leave all of us behind here and he's going to come after you and say, I want you. And I think all of us could tell stories where we tried to go AWOL from Jesus and he's chased us. He's brought us back quietly, subtly, maybe sometimes harshly, but he's brought us back to himself. 
He won't let us go. He's the one who, who runs out to meet the prodigal son. He's the one who says to the older brother, while you are with me, everything that I have is yours and speaks truth into his life. He's the one who says, when you have doubts, put your hands in my hands, put your hands in my side. He's not afraid of the doubts that we have. He loves us. He cherishes us. He nourishes us. But then in verse 30, he actually calls us members of his body. And I love this because he's not like, hey, now that you believe in me, now you're a part of what we are here, um, I'll add you to the guest list. Cool. Come in, or come in even through the back door. Like, come on. He's not saying that at all. You're not just a friend to Jesus. You are a member of his body. So a member is like a foot, a leg, a heart, a organ, a arm, an eye. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but the last time my body was hurt, whether it was a mosquito bite or a broken leg or something inside me that was wrong, the whole body just stopped and said, we're going to focus on that part until it gets better. Do you know that's what Jesus does for you when you're broken? He says, let's stop. Let's focus on the broken because we want them to get healthy again. That's what it means by the 99 coming after the one, leaving the 99 to come after the one. That's what Jesus says to us. You are members of his body. You're not just additional friends. You are members of who he is. Now, why... Why does Paul point back to Christ and the way that he loves us? Why is this so significant? Why have we spent so much time on this? Well, did you notice what Paul says in verses 31 and 32? It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. Understatement of the year, Right? Um, the mysterious distance between a man and woman is probably the hardest thing to figure out. Uh, I read a book one time by a guy named John Gray. He's a, a, a psychologist. It's called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. And I think that's probably generous. You know, it probably is further apart than that. Um, my, my daughter, she's into um, plants and loves, you know, flowers and all those kind of things. And she has this app on her phone. She was showing me that you, know, you hold this app up to a plant and it can actually tell you what's wrong with the plant. Like it has like, you know, like you're giving it too much water, you're not giving it enough water, or you know, it has like some sort of vitamin dis deficiency. I don't even know if plants take vitamins, but you know, something like that. And uh, you know, it tells you this is what you need to do to fix the plant. And I think, wouldn't it be awesome if you could get one of those for your spouse? <laughs> you just like hold it up to them when you get home from work and you're like, this is what you need from me tonight. Okay, I'm good. I'm like, honey, let me just hold this up. Okay, all right. I see what, see, some of you in Silicon Valley who are programming apps, I just gave you a great idea. <laughs> like, based upon facial recognition and things and everything, like, you could, like, I, yeah, I'm, please put my name on the credit for that one, okay? <laughs> I think when we get to the pearly gates in heaven, if such a thing exists, and we walk up and, you know, we, we're like, okay, the first question I want to ask you, God, is why'd you make it so difficult, difficult between men and women? It's just hard. It's hard to figure these things out. But here's the thing. I think what Paul is saying to us is 
as far as the distance is mysterious between a man and a woman, isn't that distance much more mysterious between God and man? In other words, if you think it's hard for you as a woman to get along with a man, imagine how hard it is for holy God to get along with you. And if you think it's hard for you, man, to get along with a woman, imagine how hard it is for a holy God to get along with you. And yet, isn't that exactly what God does through Jesus? See, though we are evil, though we have walked away from God, though we have turned our backs on him several times, though we have forgotten him, though we have traded him in for a few pieces of silver and crucified him, Though our preferences aren't the same as God's preferences. Have you realized that yet? Like if Jesus came today, he would probably go out to eat somewhere different than you pick. He would probably hang out with different people than you pick to hang out with. He would probably spend his money differently than you spend your money. Have you realized that his opinions are different than your opinions? And yet he loves us and redeems and cherishes us. And is that mysterious distance between man and God not the most profound mystery of all times? In 1 Peter 1.12, it tells us that even the angels long to look into this. God, we don't understand how you and all your holiness can hang out with these people down here. And the angels, it's like they, they're just looking, going like, I, I gotta see this. This is just crazy. Because it's a profound mystery. I think like if, if the distance between a man and a woman is from like California to New York, the distance between man and God is like Earth to Neptune. And yet God spans that gap through Jesus and he says, you are loved, you are known. I'm giving myself up for you. I'm sanctifying you. I'm nourishing and cherishing you. I'm calling you a member of my body. And here's what begins to happen in our lives. As we begin to understand the mysterious distance between God and man and the gap that he transcends in Christ, our hearts begin to melt and soften. And then we begin to understand the tiny distance between us and our spouses. And we're able to have empathy. When I realize how empathetic Jesus is to me, I can be empathetic to my spouse. When I realize how gracious and kind and patient God is with me, even when I am so undeserving, I begin to be gracious, kind, and patient to my spouse, even when he or she is undeserving. And when I realize how forgiving and loving God is to me, when I realize how much he advocates for me, when I realize how broken I am, and yet how he is like saying, I know you're broken, but I'm going to present you before the Father as perfect, without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. In that moment, I learn how to forgive. And I begin to be the advocate for my wife, for my husband when I realize just how much he nourishes and cherishes me, I begin to listen to my spouse without trying to fix her. 
when I realize God's preferences are so much different than mine and his opinions are so much different than mine. As far as from the east is to the west. And yet, I look at my wife and think about her opinions and her preferences and how they're different to me. I'm like, this is no biggie. Like, come on. Do you see how God and focusing on him begins to shift as we focus on our spouses and as we focus on each other? See, the, I want you to think about this like a, a triangle. Like at the bottom of the triangle is husband and then wife. And at the top is Jesus. And as you focus on each other, the distance is just a long way apart. But as you focus on Jesus, you're getting closer and closer together. So where's your focus going to be? Um, you could focus on your spouse, but if you do, I guarantee you this one thing. If you focus on your spouse's inadequacies or insufficiencies, they will only become more inadequate and insufficient. One marriage counselor said it to me like this. They said, the focusing on your spouse's inadequacies is like squeezing a skunk. You will just get more of the same. Yeah. I saw some elbows. <laughs> but then you could focus on yourself. And you will just beat yourself up trying to work harder. And I can tell you, at, at my age, I'm exhausted by this. I've been in the church for a long time, and I've read a lot of books. I've gone to many conferences. I've read to many podcasts so many sermons on marriage, they have all been helpful in their own particular way, but they don't do it for me. They don't fix. It's the law of halves. And yet, I fail, I fail, I fail, and I beat myself up. And yet when I focus on Jesus and I find out what he has done for me, that mysterious distance between me and God and how he feels it, he's melting my heart. And the mysterious distance between me and my spouse, you and your spouse begins to melt. You're like, okay, okay. So where are you in your marriage this morning? Are you stuck? Are you in that ditch? And if you're hopeless, can I just tell you the good news is that Jesus jumps in with you and, you know, some of you came this morning or brought a spouse with you this morning because you knew we were going to be talking on marriage. You're like, this is going to be good for them. I want my spouse to hear this this morning. And now you're kind of upset at me because you're like, I thought you were going to give us a three-point sermon on things that my spouse could do better. Or even three-point sermon on things that I could do better. You know what Jesus tells the Pharisees in John 5.39? You search the scriptures for eternal life. But in it you find me. Aren't you tired of religious organizations, including Christian ones, that search the scriptures for good advice and leave Jesus out? I am. I mean, I grew up under Jim Dobson and Focus on the Family, and, and it's great stuff. It's fantastic. But it's not Jesus, church. It will give you good principles that you will 
ultimately get tired of, and you will get tired of yourself. And what you really need this morning is you search for the scriptures, trying to find them in eternal life, and what it points to is me, is Jesus. That's what you need this morning because you need to see how broken you are and yet how God spans that mysterious gap so you can remember that tiny brokenness in your spouse, nothing in comparison to what Jesus can do and what God has done. We gotta remember, church, who the author of marriage is so we can come back to him and seek him. We gotta remember to leave and cleave, and I'm, I'm telling you, some of you got the worst, even though you've grown up in church, or grown up in the world, you got the worst marriage education. And you're stuck and hopeless because you think if I just keep doing these three things, it'll work. And you've got to leave and you've got to cleave to something that is new and good. And that is not focusing on your spouse, not focusing on yourself, but focusing on Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for hope. We are thankful that you saw us in this hopeless ditch and we've been trying to get out of it and rather than just leaving us there, you jumped in with us and said, I know it's hard. Let's go together. And we just praise you, Father, for your kindness to us. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who are struggling. I I would wager to say that probably 50% of the married people in this room feel some sense of hopelessness in one area or not in their marriage. And God, we ask for healing today. But healing that is not burdensome, healing that is not an unfit yoke, a healing that is abundant joy. So God, we we are in this series free indeed. God, would you free us through the power of your Holy Spirit? Not just in this room, but online, Hayward, all around. And God, would you make us, would you heal us so that we can brag on your goodness and your glory to the world that is struggling out there? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, church, let's give God praise for his word.